Thank you for listening to the Smoke Hole Sessions. They were inspired by my new book, Smoke Hole, Looking to the Wild in the Time of the Spyglass, which is available from all good bookshops. Sometimes I will point a story like a bone at evil to send it on its way. Sometimes I will hurl language into the air like a kind of dark speech to break nasty agencies that may not wish us well. In the old traditions of storytelling, it has that kind of power. It's a kind of ritual on the tongue on occasion. That's not all that story does, but it's down, you need it in your tool bag. Otherwise, I don't know if you really are a storyteller. You're just someone that's passing the time with a bit of banter. Who knows? In the last few years, I've seen a bit more of that kind of thing going on actually in stand-up comedy than I necessarily see in storytelling. The greatest storytellers lean into danger and on the temenos of their stage, that alchemical place set apart, they flirt with taboo maybe, they rustle around in the things that cannot be said and in the saying of the things that cannot be said. Some strange peace or resolution moves through the room and it stops it moving like an illness into our bodies or our conversations. So I think there's a lot of power in story. We remember, of course, that satire itself comes from the old bardic tradition of uh, old ancient Ireland. But I believe in storytelling. It upsets me that uh, the great Jan Blake, my guest today, or Robin Williamson isn't doing six nights at the Royal Albert Hall. And I believe that it is an art form with great dignity and learning to it. It's the oldest thing that we actually have. I never picked up stories because I wanted to spin a yarn as such. I just had a series of enormous encounters in my younger days that I had no other words I had to jump into the deep encounter. But Jan Blake, I won't say too much about her because hopefully we'll get a good introduction from her. She is a woman of such pedigree and ability and probably with a far wider perception of what story can do than myself. She's certainly been at it longer. And I'm delighted, really, that as we jump into story today, she is my guest, because I cannot think of anyone better to uh, open that door with. Jan Blake, what a delight and a privilege it is on this spring morning to be talking to you. I couldn't be happier. Oh, hi, Martin. Uh, the feeling is mutual. I haven't seen your lovely face for so long. I know. It's got us by the throat, hasn't it? It has got us by the throat. It has got us by the throat. Now, what I've been doing in these conversations is just trying to crawl out of the, the lockdown in myself, really, as well as anything else, by having conversations with people whose work I really admire and I just love talking to. And one of the areas we haven't quite got into yet, but I keep hinting at it in the interviews I've had, is the business of storytelling and specifically the old stand and deliver variety, oral storytelling. <laughs> stand and deliver yeah. variety, love it. <laughs> and I, I honestly don't know of a storyteller more loved and more respected than yourself. And I have been in the radiance of what you do 
on more than one occasion. And so I just, if nothing else, I just would love to hear more today about your life, your relationship to story, what's a life for you at the moment, how the last few months have been. So I guess I'll have one kind of official start-off question and then we'll just see what happens. Okay, hit it. So, Jan, when when did stories arrive in your life? Ah, now, stories in terms of storytelling, standing deliver storytelling, as you say, arrived yeah. in my life in 1986. But story has been weaving me into my life for as long as I can remember because uh, being a child of migrants and my mother feeling so separated from her family in Jamaica, she used to weave them, those people, my aunts, my uncles, my grandparents, she wove them into our daily lives by talking about them all the time. So she was constantly storying her family into us so that when I first met my grandparents, my grandmother, I should say, because I didn't get a chance to meet my grandfather, uh, when I met my mother's mother in 19. 19- 1986, the same year I became a storyteller, there was no um, getting to know you period. There was no space distance between us. It was just jump straight in. That's your grandmother. I knew who she was. I'd heard about her. I'd felt her. I knew my mum's favourite sister was my aunt Min. I knew, I knew all my aunties. I knew all my uncles. I didn't know my cousins. They were the only people that I felt I had to get to know because memory and story wove us all together. Wow. Now, 1986, you must have been a kiddo, really. A kiddo, yeah. I guess I was 22 when I started. And I didn't know anything about storytelling. I knew that I could hold my own on stage. I knew that much. I'd done a one-woman show written by a woman called Carol Russell called Homegrown. And it was our response to Section 136 of the Mental Health Act which basically said that if you had mental health issues and you were of a migrant community, you could be, after whatever period of time within the system, be sent back to the country of your mother's birth. So the piece was about a woman called Charlene Richards, who had been deemed to have had a a breakdown, Mm. but who basically had just lost it with someone who had been consistently racist to her a market trader had been consistently racist to her. In the end, she lost it and she and he got into it. She got arrested. And then the only thing that she had that was hers was her voice. So she stopped talking. She withdrew and refused wow. to engage. And as a result of refusing to engage, they deemed that she was catatonic and started to make their choices, medical choices based on that. So this one woman show, for me, it was life-changing. And, and I didn't know I could do that on my own. I didn't know I could be on stage on my own. I'd done some theatre, um, community theatre, which was a hellish experience, if I'm honest. I don't want to go to <laughs> It really was. It wasn't the actual doing of it. I love, you know, I, I grew up loving performing. You know, I was a natural-born performer. Mm. And when I joined this theatre company, three months after leaving secondary school, it was my dream come true, but it just became nightmarish. I didn't know that there were insidious people in the world. I didn't know that that kind of the subliminal nature of racism. I was used to in-your-face racism. Mm. I wasn't used to the kind of systemic racism that I was experiencing. I wasn't used to being exploited. I wasn't used to the thing I loved being dusted with a sprinkling of cynicism. You know, I loved to perform. And these people were stripping the life out of me, putting me in, in dangerous situations with, you know, we were once we were up in, in the Northeast and we were attacked, someone drove a car at us, people threw bottles at us, all kinds of things. But being told that that was for the common good of what we were doing, taking theatre to the masses and having to deal with it because that was your job. You know, they had to get to know you and, you know, it's like, well, what if they kill me? <laughs> Have you thought about that? <laughs> anyway, all of those things kind of left a nasty taste in my mouth. There was a distinct lack of trust now between me and white people because 
I'd never experienced anything like that. And so my guard was up, very much so. I was quite a difficult person to be around after that. Then storytelling, mm. you know, Eno Saucy, who's a storyteller in a company called Common Law Storytellers and Musicians, approached me to find out if I'd like to join them. They were looking for a Caribbean storyteller. And she said, you know, don't learn the story, just read it and then retell it. And you'll need to bring a song and a game from your tradition. I turned up, did the audition. The rest, as they say, is history. And six months after that, um, Ben Haggerty from the Crick Crack Club approached me wow. and asked me if I'd like to partake in the second International Storytelling Festival, which was at, what's a place called? Brentford Arts Centre. Yes. And Waterman's now. It's called Waterman's Arts Centre. But I've said this before, but, you know, people need to know what an impact it had on me. After I did one story, I was on stage with Toop. I was on stage mm. with Mark Matthews. I was mm. on stage with John Agard. I was on stage with James Berry. I was on stage with Grace Nichols and Grace Holworth. You know, these were all elders within the community of storytelling and poetry. I'd never met any of them. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what august company I was amongst. You know, I just <laughs> turned up to do this thing. And at the end of it, Ben came up to me with a copy of The Magic Orange Tree, Book of Haitian Folk Tales by Diane Volkstein. And he pressed it into my, and there was just the way he did it. And he said, you are a storyteller and you have to do this for the rest of your life. Wow. And I was like, okay. That, that's when it really began. That's amazing. That is amazing. Jan, where were you living at this point? So originally I'm from Manchester, but at that time I was, yeah, I was lost. I was living in London and I was a little bit lost. I think the, the act of telling and uh, researching stories to tell and then discovering, you know, it was like a treasure. It was like opening a huge treasure chest. And it wasn't just because of the stories, it was because of the culture that I'd kind of been um, at a distance from for so long, you know, living in England, going to Jamaica that one time in 86, the first time, and reconnecting with the things that my mother had been telling me about and, and being in the landscape, eating oranges grown on the land that my grandfather had cultivated, on from picked from trees that my grandfather had grown and eating sugar cane from there. And I can't impress upon you the impact of all of that. Yeah. And then coming back and that sense of loss wasn't there so much because I carried all of that inside me. Mm. I didn't have it before, but now I had it inside me. And then the stories, not just the Caribbean stories, but the stories from the African continent as well, just kind of filled me up. You know, like you feel rootless. Suddenly, I was rooted to something, something mm. that made me, if you know what I mean. I do. Yeah. You know, Jan, I was, uh, I've mentioned this before in the podcast because it was so impactful to me. I was, there's a, an American comedian I like, Dave Chappelle. He's one, he's my absolute number one. Is he? Yeah. Isn't he? He is something. And you may have seen this, but when he recently won his much-deserved, like, Mark Twain Comedy Award, yeah. he gave this speech and he directed a lot of it at his mother, beautiful, beautiful woman up in the balcony. And he said, it was my mum that filled my head with stories of the griot. Mm. And that when a griot died, it was like a library being burnt to the ground. Mm -hmm. And I really... I will never forget that. And I watched what he was doing up there and, and his form of storytelling. And he said, you know, it's a, it's a grievous time we're in when I can't say a serious thing without a punchline. Yeah. And I wonder where his story is going to take him in the future. But I'm thinking now about you, young woman, was suddenly receiving, you know, the ambrosia of your true heritage. And that's the wonderful thing, is little white people like me feel the benefit too. When we're, <laughs> we're there, we feel we may catch a scent of that orange or the wind moving over the desert places or, or the lushness of the jungle. 
And you mentioned also the Crick Crack Club, which is worth us unpacking a bit because probably most people listening to this don't know what it is and don't know how important it is. I wanted to ask you, this is really, I think, where I was going. In 1986, in Britain, in urban Britain, in London, was this, did it feel like storytelling was being revived? Was it something already established? What, what was happening? You have to remember, I knew nothing about the form. Absolutely yeah. nothing. So I believed that I'd entered something that had been ongoing. It's just that I didn't know about it. Yeah. And I realised that at that time, it, there was a revival of storytelling. Common law storytellers and musicians were doing it through schools. So we'd go into schools, we'd play music, we'd sing songs and we'd tell stories. And we'd engage the children in the stories on all of those different levels. We'd do riddles as well. And because common law had been going already, I just assumed that this was an ongoing thing that I'd just jumped on the back of. But I now realised that it was groundbreaking stuff, actually, that I was involved in. I just didn't know it. I wasn't conscious of it. And the same with Ben Haggerty and the Crick Crack Club and uh, the Company of Storytellers. They were bringing storytelling as a as an art form, as a standalone art form, separating it away from theatre, from other forms of uh, creative expression, and saying this in and of itself is a worthy form. Yeah, this in and of itself is a worthy way to express the creative within you. This is a this is a an acceptable way to dance with your muse. Storytelling. But what I found is that it's been hard for people to accept it because it seems so simple. It seems so easy. You know that saying, mouth open, story jump out. You know, it's a Caribbean saying. Like, yeah, everyone's mouth opens and story jump out. That's true. Everyone can tell a story. Everyone has a story to tell. But the idea that as a storyteller, you can't claim any sort of standard within your form because everybody can do it, there should be no idea that there are professional storytellers, there are expert storytellers, and there are storytellers who tell stories. There's a difference. And the idea that as a storyteller, you're not allowed to be an expert in your field means that there is no accountability for the standard of work that is put out there. And I think that the Crick Crack Club, Ben Haggerty, people like yourself, people like myself, I think we are here to say it's okay. It's okay to have mouth open story jump out. And it's also okay to have experts in their field. It, one does not negate the other. But it seems that this is the last bastion of no accountability for the standard of what you put out there. And if we really <laughs> look into the stories, the stories are telling us all the time it's okay to be an expert. There's experts running through all these stories, expert healers, wizards, witches, community members. There's experts everywhere and we tell stories about them and and we lift them up in the stories that we tell. But it seems as though within the form, you're not allowed to bring that into real life. That stays in the book. It's a kind of double-edged sword, isn't it? Because both you and I will delight when someone absorbs the notion of telling tales and telling stories. But at the same time, they often think they've graduated within about a week. And you'll see on social media, you know, babysitter, juggler, storyteller. <laughs> and and there's just, as we've said, there's, there's gradients to teller. There are some people for the, this is going to be a lifetime's vocation. And there are others who just have a wonderful way around the fire with some friends. And it's all one, it's all, it's all great, but some form of distinction, in the same way you have a master drummer, there is someone that knows all the patterns. They may not even be the greatest at each distinct pattern, but they know the landscape. They know they know the landscape of the mythology and the mythology of the landscape. And they are a little gossipy, deep, rambunctious, grief-filled creature 
moving through the world with this little bundle of hope in them. And you and I know that actually um, that that's not always that common. My terrible secret confession, just between me and you and however many people are listening to this, is that I don't always respond to a lot of storytelling that I hear. Because often what I pick up on is a kind of bad acting. We both know it's not about swallowing a thesaurus. It's not about the getting high on yourself with the ornamentation of your language. It's trying to tell a particular kind of truth in a crooked, beautiful way. What I often see is someone actually that is still frightened of their own personality. And there's something of a persona, but there's not a lot of presence. Yeah, I think there's a there's something about wanting to be seen. There's, I've heard this term used recently a lot, wanting to be seen on purpose. Oh. You know, and I think that there are people who, they want to be seen. They feel unseen. They feel unnoticed in their daily life for whatever reason. I don't know what those reasons might be, but it's a wound of some kind within them. And because Mouth Open Story Jump Out, there's a way of using the space where people gather to listen to make themselves seen, make themselves noticed, almost like pinching themselves, am I here kind of thing. And they use the experience to do that. And of course, if that's the only objective, those who resonate with the authentic are going to feel it and are going to know it. One of the things about being a storyteller, being a storyteller who works deeply with the material that they're telling, you put in the work over 30 odd years, is that you start to become an expert in people. Yeah. You start to understand what motivates because the stories are telling us all the time. You you begin to understand what wounds people. You begin to understand why people hide or why people are aggressive or why, you know, the stories are showing us all the time. And so even though I believe that, yes, there should be a distinction, I also believe that what we do as storytellers is we embrace we wrap our arms around everybody. We, we love, we try to love yeah. everybody in. And if people who want to be storytellers aren't conscious of that responsibility, the responsibility to stand in true authenticity, one of the truths of the varying truths that are out there. And if we are not compassionate enough to realise that it's our responsibility to love everybody in. If you haven't loved yourself in, how can you do it? Yeah. Why are you there? What are you standing there for? What is the purpose of you wanting to tell a story? What is your relationship with your own humanity and the humanity of the others who sit before you? And not just in the storytelling sense, but in your everyday life, how do you show up? Because if you can't show up as a person who sees and recognises and embraces the humanity in everybody, when you stand on stage to tell a story, the alarm bells are going to ring in the hearts of those who do. Those who stand in integrity, in truth, in authenticity, they're going to feel it. They're going to know. It's like a bum note. Yeah. You know, you can hear the discord. You don't know what that is. that shouldn't be a minor chord. That should be a major chord. I can feel it. Myself and yourself included, there are wounded people. But when someone does not tend to their own wound before they step in front of others and talk of the wounds of others in the story, we will know. And that's what it's about. And so I'm not sure it is about bad acting or anything like that. (laughs) It's about disconnect from self Therefore, from the depth of what that story is really trying to tell you about being human. Yeah, I agree. I think it takes, certainly it took me many stages to get there. My very earliest experiences of telling stories, I didn't arrive fully formed in one shot. I'm a big believer in miles, you know, road miles. 
Yeah. And for a period of time, at least, probably saying yes to absolutely every single invitation you get to tell a story. I think I think the bad acting thing is is just a phrase for me to describe probably that nervousness mm. when you haven't quite hit the deep river yet. And us watching can feel it. The teller can feel it themselves. And I think you're right. I think an attitude no one you know no one needs more shame than they've already had dished out upon them absolutely so I, I think i think a period of time where you know you're not immediately put on a scoreboard you're not immediately discerned as good bad or indifferent you just get used to the voltage of the stories you get used to where the little tributary of your life hits the ocean of the tale and for me in storytelling that's the sweet spot that's always what I'm I'm looking at. Sometimes I've come across, for me, it's a rather bewildering sentiment amongst certain storytellers where it's seen as bad form to have any kind of character or personal relationship in your own life with the story you're telling. But for me, without that, nothing's going to happen. For me, that's as weird as meeting um, Howling Wolf and saying, well, of course, these wonderful songs you sing, Mr. Wolf, have nothing to do with the yards of your own life. Yeah. Of course it's connected. It's, it's what we've talked about before. It's Duende. You know, yes. it's, it's, it's the graveyard dirt in your fingernails. Now, on that note, so you begin this extraordinary journey into storytelling. Do you feel that there were figures at the time that you particularly admired and were kind of in the wingspan of? Or did you feel pretty fully formed from the get-go? I didn't know about it, so I didn't know if I was fully formed or yeah. not. But I do know this, that Ben sent me on tour with Toop, the unprecedented yeah. Orthodox preacher, Godfrey Duncan Toop. Before we went on tour, he would pair us together on on gigs. Wow, well, he's amazing. Toop is amazing. If you say who's my favourite storyteller, it's Toop. Yeah. Uh, he is spectacular. First of all, no fear. That's the thing that I learned from Toop. Have no fear. Fly, leap, jump. You may be caught, you may fall, you might fall flat on your face. It don't matter. What matters is that freedom of expression, freedom of inhabitation, freedom of self-energy, vibes. I don't know how else to put it, you know, and, and being in his, in his orbit as a storyteller, learning how to be free on stage, how to take chances on stage, how to extemporize in the middle of a story that you may have told millions of times but to take the chance of, you know, you imagine a story is like a path, a well-trodden path, but there's a little pathway leading off from that well-trodden path and you'll walk that path forever. And then one day you just notice the little pathway off to the side and you think, I wonder what happened if I go down there? And you take that path and you discover so much more about the story, but you do that in the telling. You don't go away and reflect and think, oh, I think in that story I could have done this. <laughs> you don't do that. You allow yourself to go there in the process of the telling. You might hit a brick wall. You don't know. You don't know, but take a chance. It's fine. It's free, you know? And I learned that with Toop. I learned how to be ribald with Toop. Mm. I learned how to be rambunctious, to use your word, mm. with Toop. I learned how to love the audience with Toop. You know, he was the one, I think, who... He didn't realise he was guiding me, but I think he was guiding me through the pathway of being authentic as a storyteller. That yeah. The connection between self and the people in the stories. You know, I've, start, I've stopped calling them characters because I realise that they're people, lives lived that we have been charged with sharing with others as a, a mirror almost of who we are, what we could be, what we maybe might like to avoid, you know? 
I think that working with Toop kind of helped me settle into what I was as a storyteller. Mm. I remember the first time I saw Toop just sort of blow the lid off the tent he was in and a thousand people kind of staggering out in shock. <laughs> and this was clearly not what you would call a recital. That, you know, this is there are storytellers we both know and love, and part of their artistry is the polish of the phrasing mm. and the patterning and the tempo. I admire it tremendously. I simply can't do it. Mm. <laughs> and it's not for me. It's not ever going to be the thing. But when I saw Toop and I saw him galloping like a kind of a wild horse over the hill, but also having the ability to slow down. He wasn't frightened of empty space. It was as if he was wandering right there in front of you. This wasn't something memorised in his head. He was caught in the great imagining and at that moment had access to his jaw and could communicate some of it. Yeah, that's what I call dancing with your muse. Beautiful. You don't sit with your muse afterwards and go, hmm, so what did you think of that? You know, it's like it's in the moment of telling. Mm. You know, like um, the story of Tamashanta, and Tamashanta's looking in through the window and he's watching all those ghosties dancing. Yeah. And he goes, go on, Cutty Shark, go on, Cutty Shark. It's almost like that's what your muse is doing to you when you're telling. They're saying, go on, Toop, go on, Jan, go on, Martin, yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and you just, you do it, you know. Yeah. In in these, you know, significant, significant chunk of time now that you've been working into this discipline, when did you begin to teach? Okay. <laughs> it's a very interesting story. So I first started to teach in the 90s and didn't like the experience because I felt that the people that I were teaching were trying to teach me how to teach them. And I wasn't ready for that. I wasn't ready for the, them saying, we want you to do this and this and this. I wanted to feel my way into it. They had a clear idea of what they thought I should be doing. So I backed off. I, right. cl I closed it down. And then I was invited by Ashley Ramsden at the School of Storytelling in um, at Emerson College. They were having a storytelling symposium. I think I did three of them. And it was the first time that I was asked to teach a um, two-week course. That's a bit of a whirlwind, actually, in my mind. I can't remember what I did, how I did it. That was also in the 90s, the late 90s. I just turned up and I just tried to be as authentic as I could be. I know that the first... Oh, no, it's coming back to me now. The first workshop was sparked by an experience I'd had where a storyteller from Norway had come over to work with me on a particular story. And I found that her relationship to the darker characters was very on the surface. You know, there were caricatures, but she seemed able to really embody the, the good characters, to use mm. in parenthesis, good. And I was very fascinated by this idea that people don't want to, or didn't at that time, to my mind, didn't want to fully embrace the darkness of the darker characters. And it was a bum note yeah. to, my, to me. And I just thought, okay, I can teach this workshop. So that was the first workshop that I taught. It wasn't easy because people, that, you know, it was Emerson College. So coming from a Steiner background, I think my, what did you call it? Stand and deliver yeah. approach wasn't really what they were used to. And there was some resistance to what I was offering, but I stood my ground. Mm. Some beautiful work came out of it. Some beautiful friendships came out of it, actually. And then I did another one. And this one was a bit strange because, again, it's Emerson College. And I asked for a television and a video of Reservoir Dogs. And they were like, what? And I said, yeah, because. And I've integrated into my teaching recently as well. Mr. Orange's story in Reservoir Dogs is the quintessential storytelling training 
as far as I'm concerned. So Tim Roth's character is given a script and he's told that he has to infiltrate a gang and he has to tell them a story. And he has to choose which story he's going to tell. So he chooses the commode story. And then the whole of his scene is about how he imbibes this story. And then what I loved about the way Tarantino shot it was that he demonstrated what happens to a storyteller. Yeah, you start off, you're with the story, you sit with the story, you work the story. Someone came in, his sergeant, and said, no, you've got to, you know, everything in that story has got to be real. You've got to smell the crap. You've got to make a decision. Do you use the hand dryer? Do you use um, paper towels? It's got to be so real that they believe you. So you see him kind of trying to take the story in. Then you see him in front of the people telling the story and their responses to it. And then you see him in the scene that he's telling, but still being the storyteller, telling the story. So you see the progression. And then the next thing is you see the actual scene playing out in front of you. So you as the viewer, you see the story that he's telling happening and you've forgotten that he's telling you the story. You think this really happened. So you see the dogs, you see the police officers, you can smell the the aroma of what it is he's selling that he's got hidden under his clothes. All of that suddenly becomes real. As seen in a film, it becomes real to all of us. And then the next thing that happens is you see him make the choice and he hits the button on the hand dryer. To me, that was that blew my mind. I was just like, oh my God, that, I'm going to use that. Mm. That is teaching material right there. So that's what I did. I asked them, I asked them for all of that. And I showed that clip with all that bad language and all of that violence in Emerson College. I would almost guarantee it hasn't happened before or since. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Jan, one of the things I was thinking is at this point in your work, when you're learning a story now, how long do you chew it around before you start to actually just tell it to other folks? First of all, I will search and search and search and search until I found a story that I don't have to think about mm. telling. I, I want a story to jump in fully formed. Some people might say it's reckless, but I learned this from Toop to be reckless and to, to love being reckless is I've read a story 30 minutes before I go on stage and tell it. Because I trust myself. I trust my artistry, first of all, but I trust that story because I loved it. I wouldn't do that with a story I didn't love. Mm. I wouldn't do that with a story that I didn't feel immediate. Oh, my darling, I love your feeling about it. Do you know what I mean? I don't always have to sit with a story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I'm being asked for certain stories, I'm more likely to do that. But even up to the last minute, literally the last minute, I'll still be wondering about it. Yeah. But then I'll just tell it because I don't know what else to do. No. I, I can't sit and write notes. And do, I'm not that kind of storyteller. No. no. I There's an awful lot about the story I can't possibly know until I'm telling it. Exactly. You know, the synapses don't connect the magic doesn't happen, I'm viewing it from a distance and then suddenly you're in, you know, as you're describing, the kind of the messy wonder of getting told by it. Yes. And and that that for me is, is different. It's odd, isn't it, that there will be some stories I've lingered with for 15 years before I've wanted to, to tell them. But there are others these days... I try and get it into my jaw and I'll just call my friends up. I'll just say, look, just come round just so I can do this because I can't rehearse. I cannot rehearse. I can only do it. Mm. So as long as there's two or three people gathered, something will happen. But, but that for me has become the, the, only, the only way really at this point. And the stuff I would might reflect on at the desk, that all comes later and it's fun and it's poignant and it's interesting, but it has to be a secondary activity. The, mm. the, the telling has to be prime f- for me, yeah. I agree. I also think that I can't tell stories, or rather I can't tell a story if I don't 
going back to what you were saying about the relationship between Teller and characters in the story, if at any point there is going to be caricature, I can't do it. I have to really feel... I'll give you an example. Um, really good friend now was a student, Simon. He was telling the Keredwin story. And when he was describing Keredwin, he kind of approached her from a kind of typically caricature, witchy type person. And at that time, I'd started seeing a herbalist, Roisin Riley, a wonderful herbalist. His take on Keredwin, for me, didn't take into account what it would have meant at that time for a woman, a mother, a herbalist, someone who understood the use of every berry, every root, every flower, every leaf, every bit of bark of every tree in a forest. That every herb, that someone who knew that stuff wouldn't be a fully rounded person. Because to me, if you consider that so many witches were burnt at the stake, killed for their artistry, for their knowledge, for their wisdom, I find it really difficult to approach witches in that <laughs> way because I know what it costs. To be called a witch costs a lot. It costs lives. A woman who is desperate, desperately ambitious for her son and will take any action, there's intent in that. There's something real and deep in that. Yes, her intention might be evil. Yes, she might have taken steps to make sure that the person who did receive that wisdom should suffer at her hands. But there's depth in that character. There's depth in that person. There's something real happening in that person. Having discussed it, when he came to, to tell the story again, it just took on a completely new life because he'd imbibed everything that I'd said. And she was real her walking across the landscape, gathering those herbs to put in that pot became something completely different. From my point of view, when we meet people in stories, we have to be true to them. We have to stand in their shoes. We have to make them rounded. We have to access the parts of ourselves that are in them so that the audience doesn't get a one-sided, skewed, unbalanced view of what is going on. They get a fully rounded view of what's going on. And they may not agree with this behavior or that behavior or that behavior. They might love this character or hate this character. But we, the storyteller, have given them all a chance to breathe and to be and to, to appear, to show up. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Of course, yeah. We're hopefully coming out of lockdown now. Mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this would be very excited to know more about your storytelling, but also your teaching work. And I do hear rumours that you're brewing something. Could you tell us a bit more about it? <clears throat> okay, so I've been part of a, a business community run by the wonderful Tad Hargrave uh, oh, yeah. over in Canada. Yeah, yeah. I know Tad. And... Um, Part of my learning has been about, you know, niching and understanding who is my ideal client and all of this stuff that I'd never really thought about, you know, things that I've never really wanted to think about, if I'm honest. And my kind of stop, start, stumbling approach to teaching, apart from my masterclass, which I'm very, very, very proud of, I haven't really felt fulfilled by it. So I kind of decided to get my head down and to create, because, you know, Tad's community is through the Mighty Networks, which is an online hosting software that you can use to build communities. And so I sat with it for a bit and I thought, you know, I want to build my own storytelling community. I'm not very vocal about storytelling outside of my courses, outside of interviews. I don't really tell people what my point of view is. I don't really join in the conversations about storytelling that are out there, mainly because I'm quite a private person, one. And two, it's too much noise. 
So I decided to build my own mighty network, the Aqua Storytelling Project, and to invite people in. People who've done my masterclass, for instance, the Get In For Free, because I want them to have access to everything that's in there. Mm. But it's a subscription-based um, community. And in that network, there's access to the things that I really care about as a storyteller. So proverbs and sayings. There's all my storytelling videos, podcasts and that in one space. Film. I love film. I absolutely love film uh, because of them, which is a whole section on, it's a gratitude section. Mm. There's a section called maybe a story would help. No one's taken me up on that one yet, but it's like, <laughs> you might be wrestling with something or you feel stressed about something or something you can't quite get to. Send me a message. I'll tell you a story. There's old time people used to say, uh, which is what my mum always used to say about if she was going to say a proverb. All time people used to say, and then she'd say the proverb. So there's all of that, all those topics people can engage with, have conversations with each other as storytellers, story lovers, would-be storytellers. But then there's also my courses. I'm teaching a one-day storytelling taster for would-be storytellers. And then you have foundation one and two for people who may have taken that taster and think, I want to go a bit deeper. So the Storytelling Foundation 1, Storytelling Foundation 2. Anyone who's done those two courses, I don't want to see again for two years. And then there's five days, one story. Anyone can say to me, I really want to deepen my connection with this story. And I give them five days and we talk about it, we work it. Then there's the masterclass, which is in person, which is obviously can't happen now. Mm -hmm. But that happens in a five meter bell tent in my back garden. And I offer people lunch. I cook for them. And then there's my mentorship, which I'm beta testing at the moment with a small group because I want to make sure that it works, all the components are there. And that's just a handful of storytellers. And with them, I am helping them to create four shows. So we're looking at how do you put a show together? What is the energy of the evening? If your storytelling evening was a map, what would be the terrain? If your storytelling evening was a meal, what would be the courses? Where would you put them? How do you work with the energy of those stories? How do you work with music in those stories? The thing that comes up a lot is people saying to me of, of, a, of a traditional African story that I've dived into and loved and thought, oh my gosh, you know, I'm the custodian, I'm the guardian of this. And then people go, where can I find that story? And it's like, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I want <laughs> you to have access to that. Not because, you know, not because I don't believe that the story is beautiful or that I don't want to share it. It's just, if you search hard enough, you will find stories that are that impactful, that beautiful, that mesmerizing, that breathtaking within your own culture. It's okay, you know? You're not poor. Your culture is rich, but you just have to search for it. I had to search for it. It's not easy for me to access those stories. You know, I had to do a lot of digging and a lot of researching to get them. And I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm fuller for it. And I think that everyone can do that for themselves, for their own culture, you know, stand up, for your own heritage through storytelling. Jan, what a delight. Thank you so much for taking this time to talk to me in your clearly very busy schedule. <laughs> I just recommend to anybody that's listening, you know, jump into this, jump into this. O only good can come of it. Thank you, Martin. It is a beautiful day today. I wish you could see what I can see. But you could hear the birds, maybe catch a little rooster here and there. But I'm energized after talking to Jan and encouraged again at what an unexpected and beauteous art form storytelling can be. So I've got a poem for Jan and for you and for all of us by a wonderful teacher of poetry as well as a great poet, a man called Fran Quinn. It's called The Oracle. It's a tight fit in this world. Most of us overlap into another like a fat man. 
We make love like the old, distracted by too much of the past, or by omens pointing their bony fingers at something in a fog we can't make out. If you're male, your soul leaks out through your penis, and you say, oh, take it. I made it for you. I want you to have it. And she says a deep, thank you. I'll add it to my collection. If you're a woman, you grow your soul in the dark and from its fruits you make a strange dessert, a recipe handed down for generations. There's a secret ingredient even women don't know. It's added by some hand that appears in a dream, or when she's so angry she could spit, or when a baby catches her in her eye and locks her in. She serves it up in a small, clear dish after a gracious meal. She watches his face. The right one will find himself transformed. He will grow elk horns. He will learn to quilt. The supper will last for years. And later, if there is such a time, she will climb the jagged rocks, hanging on to an invisible rope that unites the two of you. The wrong ones, you read about them in the papers, or you see them trying to fly with their one broken wing in the sooty alleys of the city. You wonder how I know these things. I am perched so high that I can see a great distance. I know how long it takes to quilt this world to the next. I know these horns get in the way. And I know she has been waiting for me on the next ledge up, leading me farther into our lives than I ever believed was there. Thanks to Ben Adicott for producing Smoke Hole. Don't forget to check out my new book, Smoke Hole, Looking to the Wild at the Time of the Spyglass, available in all good bookshops. And bad too. <laughs>